0: Are listening to Race Capital on WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with Kalia Harris. And it's our first episode of 2022. Y'all, this week on Race Capital, we are kicking off the year and Black Futures Month with our very first COVID Watch episode. And it's all about community care in Richmond. We are so excited to dig in to some local mutual aid efforts that have been addressing the lack of personal protective equipment, or PPE, in the Richmond area. As the Omicron variant has ravaged the nation and the world, here in so-called Richmond, we have been navigating the mishandled pandemic as COVID-19 enters its junior year. There are many, many reasons as to why we are in this current predicament. Intentional decisions made by our government at the global, national, state, and local levels that prioritize money and profits over life and quality of life. Rampant misinformation spreading like wildfire. And, of course, the so-called return to normal that has sped up viral mutations resulting in so many deadly variants of COVID-19. And while this list could go on and on, in today's episode, we will focus on the severe lack of PPE, testing, and resources needed to protect ourselves and survive during this pandemic. First, we will kick it off with a discussion with all three Race Capital co-hosts before going into my conversations with Lauren Garcia, a current Ph.D. student at the University of Virginia and VCU alum, And Natalie Del Castillo of River City Harm Redux. You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. And it's our first episode of the year, so stay tuned. race capital on the week of wednesday february 9th 2022 with kalia harris
1: chelsea higgs
2: wise and naomi isaac
0: and we are kicking off this episode talking about what's been giving us hope and what's lighting our fire so co-hosts what's been giving y'all hope in 2022 what's keeping the fire lit for you
1: Well, I will go first for this. Thank you so much for this question, Kalia, and for starting us off. I will say that something that's really been bringing me joy and lighting my fire is my little kid, my kid Chloe. And she has really just been growing and learning and wanting to spend more time and wanting to know more, wanting to share more. And I can just find so much joy and stopping everything I'm doing that is considered quote unquote productive and turn to her and have such a good time and laugh so hard. And I feel really honored to be able to watch this little person develop and be proud and learn things. And I mean, I'll tell you today, I actually was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, really fully talk about The term abolition when it comes to jails and prisons, because she had brought up someone going to jail because we saw all of these cop cars go by leaving swim lessons. And I was like, well, mom mommy actually thinks no one should go to jails and prisons because it resembles so much of what our ancestors went through with enslavement. And y'all, this girl got it immediately and she's almost eight years old and we had a whole conversation in the car about it. And, you know, you talk about Black History Month, Black Futures Month, and I see the future, a future, and it's so bright and happy. And I'm, like I said, so honored and grateful that I get to watch someone grow that's going to really contribute so much to our future. So that's been my light and my fire
2: (laughs) yes comrade chloe like i swear to god that kid is so smart just so intuitive like truly does pay attention and you know has some i can see the theoretical like the the clocks ticking in her head when she really does engage with this material so that's why i just think it's so it's so necessary you know that like it's not even just the surface level that you engage with the subject with your kid it's like you need to tell them you know, straight up what's going
1: on because they can't understand. They understand, y'all. So a story I'll, I'll share. The first week of Black History Month, my daughter brought home some papers of famous people that they were learning and she came home and she said, Mommy, I asked why there were four people on my paper and only one of them was Black. And she just, she said, she asked her teacher and her teacher said, well, part two has more black people on there. And she was just like, mommy, I don't understand why there's always like less of us on there. And, you know, it's just these questions that come up and she was like, I just don't think the school is teaching us the right thing. And so the fact that she knows she's getting taught the wrong information, and it's not that we ain't here or we don't belong on a famous person list It's just because she has been around and she's been listening and it just reminds me that you can speak truth to kids and we find a way to have a conversation all the time.
2: Yes. Yeah. So I feel like for me, I really struggle with this question, not because there's not things to be hopeful, quote unquote, for, but because like, I don't know, I guess called part of my revolutionary practice that I, I want to resist hope as the driving, like finding a silver lining. And the fact that, you know, we are witnessing, you know, just take it there. Another, stage of this genocide, this project that has been in place now for centuries, right? And so I feel like, for me, it's been about holding on to memory and really remembering, you know, like we talk about the failure of this nation right now as being nothing new. But I also find a lot of strength and courage and wisdom in the fact that that means that this resistance is not new. And, you know, since the first musty boot, you know, reached Jamestown, folks have been creating systems of care. How could you not, you know, throughout enslavement, throughout mass torture, throughout kidnapping, literally being taken from your homeland and coming here and being forced to toil under foreign domination? You know, how could you not develop systems of care? And so for me, it's really been about remembering those people who have been forced underground, who have been forced into colonization, those queer folks, those disabled folks, those grannies, you know, those poor folks who have already forged out these systems of care that we're now leaning on as we see that you know, the so-called United States of America uh, is not interested in taking care of the subjects that you know it has captive here. Uh, and so for me, uh, what recently has been grounding me is literally just sitting in that history just sitting in that legacy of folks who, despite all odds, have continued to exist. The fact that we're here speaking, you know, speaks to the legacy of the systems of care and the systems of and the methods of resistance, right? And so when there's not much to really, you know, sit and be hopeful about when folks are starving, when folks are housing insecure, when folks are caged, you know, it's really hard to find hope in that. But what I can find hope in is that, you know, we have done it many times before you know we've survived and that's that's powerful to me that's really encouraging so yeah that's kind of what i'm sitting with this month
1: we've done it before and we've survived yes it's
2: giving me black august and
0: i don't know if that's the leo and me speaking or uh what but that is what i get from the vibe i get from what you're saying and i really do identify with a lot of pieces of it because part of the reason why I think this question has come up for me is because I am wondering what's giving other people hope because it's looking a little grim out there not gonna lie my fire is definitely lit it's hot it's expanding and probably dangerous right um the amount of like rage that I feel like I have for just all the stuff that has happened even since we've been able to come together and record together like just disappointment after disappointment but there also have been some pretty awesome wins and even in recording this episode with our guests and reflecting on those systems of care and the legacy even in the last like our recent history that to me was like really powerful (laughs) to just actually sit in that and think about it and reflect on it and within The VSPN, we've been doing a lot of deep assessment, which has me in reflection mode, which kind of has me thinking about the wins that we've, the lessons that we've accomplished. And in that, there's something beautiful to be learned and felt. And I think that's just something that I've been enjoying within this Black History Futures Month. That and just connecting with people again, (laughs) whether it's on Zoom, FaceTime and my friends, Playing with my nephew, just actually feeling like a human, I think has been a a big thing that's grounding me and probably maintaining the aforementioned fire. Yes,
2: we need people. (laughs) Yes. And we need to go outside. Like that is something I didn't even, you know, as somebody who really cares deeply about the land, I've been so afraid to go outside because when you only got these city blocks and people out here running with no masks, like that really makes me super paranoid. Like, people are just out here running in these streets, playing games and I'm not, you know, I'm not the one. So I haven't really been outside like that, but you know, it is something that is so important to being alive, you know, just experiencing the world, like getting to see the sky, getting to touch the grass, getting to, you know, literally just be one with the air or the water or something, it's so important. And it is something that I seriously have neglected um, this entire pandemic. And just getting to be outside has been really um, really grounding for me, <laughs> you know, out, outside of just remembering uh, you know our ancestors, those who exist and being formed, but like literally remembering the land. And like just going outside and picturing what once was there is so relaxing to me, because I know it will be there again in the future if we just keep on like we keep it on. Um, and yeah, so that's brought that's me a lot of joy. Just seeing the little squirrels do their thing. It's so cute yes and speaking
0: of people running around without masks on that is exactly what we are going to be talking about on today's episode is the serious lack of PPE in Richmond all over and ways that our community members are addressing the need through mutual aid. So y'all, be sure to stay tuned. We got exciting stuff brewing this year. This is just the first episode. So y'all stay tuned. And just a reminder, you can find Race Capital episodes anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the show. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Sure. Um, My name is Lauren. I use she and her pronouns. Uh, I'm currently a student at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, I was a student at VCU for four years. I was getting a part-time master's, and so I lived in Richmond for five years and got really involved with organizing there. Um, But yeah, I'm just doing this PhD life right now.
0: And do you mind if I ask, what are you studying?
3: Not at all. I study sociology. Um, So I I have a bachelor's in anthropology, a master's in sociology, and now PhD in sociology soon.
0: Yes, give us scholarly goodness. That's wonderful. You are now in Charlottesville. You're pursuing your PhD. And you're at UVA, which we know is really just a mess with this COVID situation. And so can you kind of tell us like, what has been the situation on campus? Um, How how has the university been handling COVID and how have you been navigating it as a student?
3: Yeah, so there's like an individual personal level to it. And then, you know, the institutional level. So personally, I have a disability that I need accommodations for. And because of COVID, I guess a lot of students were trying to get accommodations to do remote learning and the university cracked down on it pretty hard. And so if you hadn't tried to get those accommodations prior to the Delta variant surging, they weren't even giving it out. If you hadn't applied for the accommodation previously, they weren't giving it out, which was really difficult because it was my first semester last year. Um, last fall. And so I found that the disability accommodations process was really complicated by COVID. And also because the university is so tied to this back to normal narrative, it's almost like disabled people get in the way of that. And so I felt really um, extra marginalized my first semester. Thankfully, they've become a little more lenient this semester, especially with Omicron surging at the beginning. but even still, there are no there was no PPE given. They have lax rules about masking in indoor spaces. You're allowed to, well, last semester you were allowed to eat and drink inside, which is just not the move. Covid's still here, and it's really disappointing to see the way the university at large handled it. They also, are piecemeal doing things per department. And so in the sociology department, I know I brought up, you know, can we get some KN95s? And my department supplied them for us, but it's not the same across departments. And they also only supplied them for the graduate students. So that's interesting.
0: Yes. And just hearing that the universities, and this is not just a UVA thing, but that universities are not providing masks, the bare minimum, as they're taking away the mandates for vaccines and masking. They're not even providing it to the students or uh, workers, or if they are, it sounds like it's very selective.
3: Very selective and very piecemeal. That's what we get when there is no uh, well planned institutional response to a public health crisis. You know, departments and individuals have to fend for themselves, and that sucks because we don't just stay in our departments, right? We all take classes outside, especially undergraduates. And so, yeah, super disappointing. The the revoking of the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates. It's really, it's really hard to deal with.
0: Yeah, and I know at UVA, the student council has been working to distribute masks. So it's almost like it's on the students and community members themselves to distribute these things. You know, that's not tuition money that is going to that. That's community money. But I'm wondering a little bit about this PPE drive idea that you brought to the Richmond community. What sparked that idea and how did you get it started?
3: Yeah. So Twitter, I saw a tweet, you know, I feel like people are really negative about the internet. I feel like we grew up in in an era where everybody was like, don't talk to strangers online and like be really careful. But as far as the last few years, I've found that the internet is the best space for organizing and really like creating tangible offline change. And so I saw a tweet from somebody who I didn't know, but I saw that some friends had commented on it. Uh, you, Kalia, Chelsea had had met, made a mention on it. And I was like, listen, let's just do this. It was about how the government is very clearly not going to give us what we need. And so how are we doing this for ourselves? Which is a thing that we should never have to ask, but also if we have to, let's just do it. Um, and so my birthday was a week away and I was like, I'm just going to ask people for money um, because I know last year, that's what I did with providing some stuff for our community fridge. So last year, the fr- the first fridge was opening around my birthday. And I was like, I'm going to place an order. Who wants to help? And I got an incredible response. Again, the power of Instagram and Twitter. But I decided to do the same thing for my birthday. And I connected with a bunch of Richmond orgs. And they were like, yep, raise the money. I bought the stuff. I had some friends help me put kits together. And my wonderful saint of a partner, Anthony, he also helped big time. And he drove them to different organizations in Richmond. And we got masks to people. That easy.
0: (laughs) That is amazing. And so the tweet, which was from a comrade in D.C., Jordan DeLoach, actually was calling people to action about this government, the governments, the institutions are not showing up. They still haven't,
3: (laughs) right? This was, I think, a month or so ago.
0: What was your birthday Lauren?
3: So it's about... A little over a month ago on the yeah. second day, And did. in that
0: time that this thousands of dollars were raised to distribute these kits, the government has only sent out what four at home kits and even that's questionable how many uh, kits each household has gotten for mm-hmm. COVID testing it's, it's wild and just hearing you talk about it and how the idea came to you from hearing from comrades in your space, it reminds me a lot of how the mini grants program within mutual aid started, because we were all, you know, in the space of texting each other on the digital realm, you know, and decided to have this idea to raise funds and redistribute it. And that was three years ago. And now that Project has continued. Same with the, I would imagine, the community fridges, right? Where these projects have started and continued through people just really coming up with it and taking action. And I think that's so beautiful that we have such sustainable projects or successful short term projects because we're doing it ourselves.
1: Amen. And in the
0: meantime, the city government, the county governments, the state, the national governments, the universities with all of their funds, endowments, budgets have still not invested in the people. And that to me is just so infuriating that it was so, it's not easy for us, but it's possible for us to do it on a small scale and what that could look like if our our systems were actually made to care
3: rather than to harm. Exactly, I think about that constantly because I was, I was talking to people about how nothing brings me more joy than filling in a gap where an institution failed, and also nothing makes me more angry. It really sucks that we have so much, lost so much faith in our institutions, in like the electoral process, in government in general, That we feel the need to do it ourselves as young people, as students, as people of color, as working class people with little to no resources. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but you don't see people with generational wealth doing any of this. It's always just us passing around the same five dollars to protect ourselves, to literally protect ourselves when the people who we elect or hire to or pay to won't do it. Um, so yeah, lots of mixed emotions there. It's real, and
0: we'll continue to do it, right? It's it's the beauty of community, but I think laying it out and showing what could be with the millions and billions that go to law enforcement each year, how we could be reinvesting right now in this pandemic and how possible it is. So, thank you for taking action on it. Can we just talk about the PPE drive? So, how much money? Were y'all able to raise? How many kits did you pack? Because I remember watching your Instagram and it was like you and your homies up late packing these kits and had huge containers that were brought to Richmond. So, what was
3: that like? So, we raised a little over $6,000 and it was really um, overwhelming to say the least, um, but really awesome to be able to because I, for transparency's sake, I wanted to buy as soon as I had enough to buy a thousand masks, because when you bulk buy, the price goes down. And so I bought about 5,000 masks. We did a little over a thousand kits total um, in both a regular size and a size for the kids. And we partnered with River City Harm Reduction, um, some folks at Mutual Aid District of Richmond, also the Richmond Tenants Union, who's doing a drive this month. So they'll get masks to families and then we brought some to the fridges. So those are going to be distributed throughout the month as well. And yeah, I am so incredibly lucky to have met the most wonderful people in Richmond. My grad school cohort was always down for whatever crazy thing I wanted to do and like just to help people. And so I know that when I have a big project like this and I'm like, hey, guys, I'm doing this, um, they'll be like, let me know how I can help. And so I had, you know, someone who I met in Richmond who now lives in Charlottesville come over and help friends from Richmond came to Charlottesville to help. It was really, really lovely seeing like how community can still get together, even if we're an hour and a half away. And a lot of our most recent
0: episodes have featured community members from Charlottesville. And something that I've been learning, especially in my time with Virginia Student Power Network, is how similar in some ways Richmond and Charlottesville are, And so I often call us sibling cities. And so it's so beautiful to see that collaboration happening here. And something I'm hearing too, in all of these organizations that are helping with the distribution is that utilizing the established relationships was so crucial to this. The fact that there are uh, orgs that are already in community, that there are people that are already in direct communication with People who need the masks and how powerful that is to not compete with
3: one another, but actually collaborate to get the goal done. It is absolutely beautiful. Barbara Ransby, I believe, talks about scaffolding and like building in the off season and having the infrastructure there to support when crisis hits. And, you know, everybody in Richmond has really done that work. The Black and Brown led organizations have been at the forefront of that work, even in spite of white organizations. (laughs) And that is incredible to see, like to see those dreams of people who've been doing organizing for decades come to fruition in that way.
0: Yes, and the idea of the off season, we've, we've talked about that on the show. And I think especially Nomi has talked about the cycles of the ups and downs of the movement. And I really think, like, I appreciate you illuminating the existing networks that we have, because I think sometimes in the off-season, we can get really discouraged. It's like, oh, we're not in the streets. Things are not going our way. We're losing. When in reality, this is the time to work and work and work to make sure our networks are stronger so that next time we do go out in the streets, next time it is a crisis, we are ready even more so than we were last time when we went 100 plus days in uprising. So it's beautiful to see that even since 2020, it's 2022 now, and these things are still happening and we're able to invest intentionally our time, our resources, and our ideas, like not keeping them to ourselves um, and actually sharing them and acting on them. So I think one of the beautiful pieces of your story, Lauren, is that you are a student, your doctoral PhD student at UVA, and you are not only balancing your work life, your studies. I know right before we got on, you were talking about your stats homework, right? So it's like, it's real stuff happening that takes up a lot of your time, but you're also prioritizing community in that. And so I'm wondering for other doctoral and postgraduate students that are listening to this, and even some of those undergrads, what role do you think that students, but especially doctoral students, can play in building people power
3: on and off campus? So since Bell Hooks passed recently, I've been reading a lot about her thoughts on academia. As people of color who come from working class backgrounds, graduate school is not comfortable. Academia is not comfortable, especially where I am at an elite university. I am a fish out of water, and that doesn't even like start to scratch the surface of it. And so bell hooks writes about how in academia, people take for granted that they have had a radical political education. And we don't get that, especially as the institution of higher ed in general gets increasingly corporatized and financialized and eaten up by capitalism, where business presidents are the presidents of universities and they have no real academic experience. It's so important that we prioritize radical political education at the university, and it is a beautiful space. That's what bell hooks talks about, a beautiful space for that radicalization. And so I'm thinking a lot about that and how academia is not just this horrible place for us, it's a place where we can find each other. And that leads to organizing, it just naturally happens when working class people find each other. We talk about our material conditions, we talk about our experiences, and that's what leads to taking some action. And that would not happen if we were not in this space. We have such a specific outlook um, and point of view that has traditionally not been in the university. And so I think that the role of a student is to agitate. We can do things, especially as graduate students and sometimes undergraduate students, because we are seen in the university as a, a labor source, but we're not actually workers. And so we're in this weird middle spot where a faculty member may not be able to speak out, especially if they're not tenured. But as a student, we're both a consumer and a labor source. And so we get to have a little bit more of a say. Um, So I think that is the role of a student in the university. We can band together, find freedom and joy in speaking with each other about our experiences and then take the fight to the institution. Yes,
0: and the the beauty is that grad students and undergrad students can collaborate, right? And especially over the last year, we've seen the beauty and power of graduate students and doctoral students organizing both on the labor front um, and just in academia in general, whether it's Columbia University or these other schools where people are striking, where they're coming together and having these organized campaigns. Um, And it's powerful. And I think sometimes when we think about college, we think of that four years where people are on campus, um, which is actually not even accurate for undergrad students, right? But especially misses those other pieces of the student experience. And so thank you for lifting that. And I hope that there are students listening, there are faculty and folks in the university community that are hearing this because what I'm hearing I mean, I'm I'm out of grad school a couple of years, it's been a minute since I stepped on campus, but what I'm hearing is using the university as a site of resistance, as a place to have care um, and center care, and I'll add expropriating resources as possible, right? Because we know that UVA is hoarding wealth, billions in endowment funds, they'll get millions more from the state after the legislative session. And they're not even giving people masks. I think I saw the RAs got one mask, maybe, a measly mask. And so what does it look like for students, for faculty, for staff to have these programs to raise funds and distribute these uh, PPE to the community? And that's not just students and workers, but that's the community that the university is a part of. So I'm just sitting here with ideas, child. I just, I love it. And I love what you have brought to Richmond. I think I even saw maybe Blessing Warriors was getting some masks. Warriors, yep. Yeah. So that's a real success. I know we'll talk to Natalie a little bit about how distribution has been going as well. But how can folks that are listening to this, that are inspired by the work that you're doing and also just your analysis, right? How can they support that work and the efforts that you're a part of?
3: One thing I wanted to say is that in graduate student or student organizing in general on campus, I am always prioritizing the staff, not the administrative staff, but like custodial staff, food service workers, and the workers in the community at large. So the person who works at Panera next to UVA's campus is affected by everything UVA does, right? The people who live in Southside are affected by VCU. And so it is it would be an incredibly important message to me to get out that as a student, we need to be thinking about how the university affects the community, especially because, I, like I said, we're in the position to make demands that faculty is not and that the community at large is not. And so use the power that we do have for them. And as far as um, supporting just talk to people around you. I think we get really siloed in our in our jobs, at our schools, we get siloed in what we're doing and we don't take time to talk to people around us. Like have you ever had a conversation with your neighbor? Like that's how tenant organizing starts to happen. Our fates as students, our fates as people in a neighborhood are linked with each other. We have more in common and when we talk, that plants seeds for making things better. So yeah, talk to a neighbor. That's my that's my ask.
0: Y'all heard it here first, listeners. We are asking you to talk to your people and talk to somebody new. You don't know what kind of ideas can spark. I know watching the tweet from Jordan, who I met in undergrad in Nova, come all the way down to Charlottesville, Virginia, to end up with a PPE drive in Richmond. Like that's wild. And also beautiful how that happens and so we can do all that by talking to each other lauren you came here with a message and a lesson for us today and i thank you thank you so much for joining the show and you know you're welcome here anytime we'd love to have you back
3: thank you for having me thank you for all the work you all do on this narrative push so important thank you
0: it. So today we have Natalie Del Castillo from River City Harm Reduction. Welcome to the show. Thank
4: you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're happy that you're here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'd love to. My name is Natalie Del Castillo, and I'm a first generation Peruvian American who was born and raised in Northern Virginia. Specifically, Fairfax and Loudoun County for the NOVA folks listening. Um, I joke with people that I was radicalized out of the womb because, as the child of immigrants, community and mutual aid have always been a core part of my life. I moved to Richmond this past April in 2021 after going through a lot of life challenges uh, due to the pandemic, really. I knew I wanted to tap into the community and find ways to serve others when I moved here, but I wasn't sure of how to do that. Thankfully, I met my friend Anna, who was actually involved in harm reduction um, in Richmond, and I was familiar from a very surface level, but Anna's passion for this work is honestly what drew me to it. I have a lot to learn about this space, and I'm grateful to have so many mentors within our group, River City Harm Redux, that graciously share their knowledge.
0: Well, we are so happy that you are here in Richmond. Can you tell us a little bit about River City Harm Redux? and also just harm reduction as a concept. What kind of work
4: are y'all doing and who are you engaging in your work? Definitely. So like I said, I was fairly new to harm reduction. Um, You know, I had actually watched, (laughs) I love telling people about this episode. There's a show uh, from BuzzFeed, I believe, or something like that. It was in 2016 and they did a profile on a Seattle safe use space. uh, And I believe it was like in, an overdose location in Seattle uh, where people could be safely monitored and taken care of if needed. And that really sparked my interest in this work because I think for me personally, a value that I have always lived with or believed in is that a human being, no matter what, deserves to be loved, supported, and kept safe. And that's always been something to me, even from like being a child, I believe is true, no matter who that person is or what they struggle with. And so harm reduction caught my eye because I believe at the core of all harm reduction work is that we just want to keep everyone safe, regardless of what they may struggle with or what they may do in their daily life. Yeah, that's that's it. And so for River City Harm Redux, the way we like to see ourselves is a group of grassroots activists who provide free harm reduction supplies, which includes naloxone, uh, aka Narcan. Safe supplies like syringes, smoke kits, snort kits, and additional mutual aid, which includes food, books, clothes, hygiene products, menstruation products. And this goes to anyone who needs them, as well as we provide education and advocacy about harm reduction, especially locally. We do in-person outreach four days a week every week, and we serve Richmond and the surrounding areas. We are 100% funded by the community. And a little bit about the work we do and who we serve and engage. This group started pre-pandemic in 2019, and we've grown from five or six members to around 15 members currently. This growth has been massive as we navigate this never-ending pandemic. Our goal has always been to give folks what they need, no questions asked, We've always aimed to reach community members who use drugs, who are houseless. But in reality, we serve any person in the community who needs support. When we're at the table at outreach, we always say, take whatever you need, take whatever you want, and take more for others if you need it. That's real.
0: (laughs) And that growth from, you said around five to 15 people, that's incredible. Hearing from 2019 to 2022, like that's really wonderful to hear how you all have been able to expand and remain sustainable. And this no questions asked approach to the work, I think is something that I really appreciate. And it's cool to hear about. So how have y'all been navigating the challenges that have come with the mishandled COVID pandemic? Because it's been a hot mess.
4: It has been so much. Um, I honestly think doing this work had opened my eyes personally to how much the struggle was different for everyone based on whatever, you know, your situation was. River City Harm Redux has worked throughout the entire Pandemic, so we've honestly just had to navigate things week over week. Um, We were getting loads of masks and hand sanitizers from Mad early in the COVID days, which was so incredibly helpful. We included information around mask wearing, sanitizing when things were super unknown uh, to the community. And we go back to March 2020. Support services closed down at the top of COVID when everyone was just trying to figure out what to do. And so during that time, we really did anything we could. Uh, We had a small housing fund so we can out tents and sleeping bags. Um, we were able to, and this effort specifically, we were able to support folks who couldn't access shelter or who weren't interested in going to the big room that the city housed folks in, because obviously that was a rightfully terrifying option to choose from when so much was unknown. And with the most recent waves of Omicron, we faced a ton of scheduling challenges as our members and their families also, also struggled with COVID spreading like wildfire. You know, we have parents in the group, we have students, we have people that work in the service industry, retail, um, all kinds of jobs. And so we've felt really grateful for like the multiple partnerships with other community groups through the pandemic that have helped us provide supplies to the community and us to stay safe
0: yeah that's incredible, and I know y'all have been out there because working with matt r v a and helping to coordinate some of the efforts, it's been clear that we can always call on you all to kind of help out or collaborate on things. I think it's beautiful because what we're describing is something that we've talked about on the show before of this ecosystem of care and like how that is related to the work we're doing to abolish the systems of harm. Is creating these sustainable systems of care and networks that we can work together to get stuff out. And even the most hectic of times, like at the height of the COVID pandemic.
4: Yes, definitely. I mean, I think I realized very quickly joining the group, you know, I didn't get to see that kind of initial coming together moment in March 2020. But when I joined a year later, it was so obvious to me that the community. The community support in general, but also support from these like that ecosystem that you mentioned, um, is really what carried us to this entire thing. You know, we are continuing this work. We were able to grow those members because of the support we got from these groups. And at the end of the day, I just hope that you know this continues for as long as all of us have the energy to, and for the generations that come after, just because it's it's a beautiful thing. I think it's what's made me feel at home in Richmond so quickly.
0: Yes, it is. And something that Lauren and I were talking about, too, is how these things are funded by the people. They're created by the people. They're done by the people. And how this could be what our reality was if our economy was one that actually invested in the people rather than violence and separation. And so hearing you describe even how you all are funded, who's involved with it and who you're serving, I think that It's a beautiful example of the type of projects that we can just kind of come up with and
4: enact. Definitely. And this actually takes me back to a thought that I meant to share. This is attached to kind of how we started. Um, I wanted to share the story from some of our founding members since I wasn't a part of that but you know i got to chat with some of them before this conversation and i learned that this group really got started after some of our founding members personal experiences working in state sponsored orgs they realized that state sponsored programs options were not in touch with the reality of the criminalization and resulting trauma of the drug war people in need were coerced into giving a ton of personal information for data reporting in exchange for critical and life-saving medical supplies. These options are super controlling and not actually about giving power and autonomy to folks who use drugs. And the idea for us Uh, meaning River City Harm Redux, was to fill in the gaps of what state-funded sites do, but with no barriers, like we've talked about. The group decided early on that we would focus on community funding and organizing in order to serve anyone in the community that was in need. And community support is at an all-time high, and it's given us the ability to continue the work we do and expand it week over week, which includes this PPE drive, everything that's happened recently. It's just been massive.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much power in the piece about how much the government um, and institutions require of folks to even provide the very minimum. I remember with the mini grants program that we did for mutual aid, the city did a similar program and they were asking for so much information for not even nearly the same amount of money. Mm -hmm. And also the piece that you brought up about the, the drug war and the impact on people's lives, their material lives, and how when we talk about repair, repairing the harm of the drug war. I know Chelsea would be here talking about resentencing if she was on the show today, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's lots of pieces, right? It's getting people out of jail. It's, it's also working with the people who have been affected by the drug (laughs) war and all its, its corners and facets and actually not creating more barriers to healing. And so I think that that is so powerful. What does it look like to have support without barriers?
4: Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the, that's like the reality we're facing right now, right? Is that like we've said, we can exist and live in this kind of perfect world that we all imagine with like this ecosystem of community support. We just need everyone to imagine it with us, right? It it is possible. And I think, you know, in these spaces, we all recognize that it's possible because of the work we do because of the people we're amongst, but I think for me, as I get deeper in this work, I, I'm really curious of how to bring everyone along. Like, how do we make others believers into doing these things, right? Like resentencing and like you said, removing the barriers for people that have been wronged over time. Um, it's, it's actually really interesting uh, segues kind of to another part that I did not mention about RCHR is that we started off in 2019 and it was very, you know, a little loosey goosey and the pandemic really put it into full drive of how we needed to get supplies into people's hands. And the group transitioned into delivery-based services to get supplies to the areas surrounding Richmond where there was lack of access. And we did deliveries all over, even out to places like Petersburg. We found that the delivery model wasn't equitable. And we thought that with outreach, we could serve more folks that needed it the most by going directly to the areas they're living and hanging out in. Setting up in predetermined locations on a weekly basis allowed us to reach more houseless folks, more underrepresented people who are Black, Indigenous or people of color, outreach has also helped build our visibility amongst the community in general. So I think here, this was such a great example of the group seeing something after a few months with the deliveries and realizing that, It was not reaching the people that needed it most, Um, and and it was create. There were barriers, you know. There was a cell phone. You had to have a cell phone to text us and let us know that you needed supplies, and then you had to have the time to wait for someone to drive out there. And and not everyone has those luxuries. And so I think we've just really learned. Obviously, we don't have data to back it up, and we don't really want to have that data to back it up because I think that just creates more barriers. But I do know from just the week over week and being an outreach that the word is getting out and more people find us. We have people drive from Williamsburg to get safety supplies. We, we see people from all over. Um, and while we don't do deliveries, we definitely still maintain a line, uh, a phone line where we will get supplies to people if they are in super need. And yeah, I just feel really grateful for the group that we have right now. It's, it's really, it's really great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, y'all's system sounds really cool. And I really appreciate you bringing up this piece about evaluating the work, assessing it and being flexible and willing to change the ways that you're doing things so that they better work towards your goal. That's something I feel like within VSPN, Virginia Student Power Network, we've been talking a lot about is assessment and the power of it in organizing. Just thanks for bringing that up. And I know with Mad RVA too, there have been a lot of points of inflection where we're thinking, you know, should we adjust something? Should we change something to make it so that we're aligning better with our goal and reaching the people that we
4: intend to reach? Definitely. And I mean, I think we've learned, or at least I've learned from the people and the founding members in our group that the best way to find out what people need is asking them, um, you know, mm-hmm. for us our safe use supplies. You know, we have people in the group that are in recovery or have experience using drugs and they try to give us the knowledge that they have, but everyone's different. Everyone needs different things. You know, the syringes that we hand out, even I feel like this is the most unique thing we do. We get people who reach out to us who need syringes for hormones. They're going through transition. We have people with diabetes that reach out to us that don't have access to these supplies. And it's just... People are in need and we just want to be there. And so I think when we talk to people that we uh, see at outreach, we just say like, what's everyone needing right now? And, and, you know, that's kind of like with the Omicron waves, with the COVID supplies, like that's been kind of the biggest current need and people being like, what, like you have COVID tests, like you have KN95s. And that to me is just to be able to have that for everyone is the dream, right?
0: Yes. And so let's get into that and talking about the COVID and PPE stuff. Lauren and all of us really worked together to raise some funds, get the word out so that she could purchase all of these masks. There were
4: 4,000 masks.
0: Yeah. So thousands of masks, about a thousand packs of kits. And you all have been helping out with
4: distribution. What has that process been like? Yeah, so the PPE drive has been honestly a fresh breath of life for us at Outreach. Um, The Omicron wave was hairy. As I said before, uh, it was a lot. And, you know, all of us were in the same kind of situation. And we were even debating, you know, what do we do about Outreach? Obviously, there's some risk there. We're lucky that our group is all vaccinated and boosted but we all kind of you know sat around and talked at one of our meetings. Um, do we continue outreach? Do we continue with this risk? And we all agreed that those of us that could, that had the access and luxury to stay at home or didn't have kids at the house or elderly people or immunocompromised family members, things like that. And I was one of those people. I think those of us that were able to, um, you know, stepped up when we could. And those that weren't helped in other ways. We have so many jobs in the behind the scenes um, with just supply purchasing, ordering from all kinds of places and working with partners, making pickups and all kinds of stuff. So everyone is just a vital piece to the whole operation. And so back to the PPE and supply distribution right before MAD, RVA and... I think that was Colleen with Matt RVA connected us to LC and Race Capital. We were going back and forth in our group chats about how we could raise funds to buy PPE and other COVID supplies to keep the community safe. When we heard about partnering with y'all and LC for the mass drive, we were so stoked. People like, I, I think I wrote to the group chat. And everyone was like, what? Like, how did we just like, we were just talking about that. Like, how did that just come up and, and it made me, it was one of those like really, really glowing moments where I was like, man, I love Richmond. Like, this is awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, people at outreach have just been so excited to have access to these supplies to stay safe. Someone said to me, I actually have never seen one of these like rapid tests. Um, I would love to try it. And so I was so happy that they could. And so those tests, we were also able to secure a donation of 700 COVID tests that came at the same time, and so some of those have been passed through the different groups that are organizing alongside of us, and yeah, we continue to hand out those materials. I think we just got 100 of those mask kits plus thermometers and pulse oximeters and COVID tests to a group called Blessing Warriors here in Richmond, and that was a really nice handoff, and just running the COVID corner at outreach has been a really big source of joy for me lately. It makes me really happy to know that people can feel safe because everyone deserves that
0: I remember that moment where we all kind of shared one singular brain cell and had that, that same idea at the same time. And honestly, those are the moments where I feel like these types of projects are usually born, the, the networks are reified, and it's so beautiful to be a part of it. it. Gives me goosebumps even remembering. Yeah, same. So if people are listening to this, they're in the Richmond area. And they need COVID supplies or really any of the resources that you've mentioned here. What's the best way
4: to contact you all? That is a great question. So there's a few ways you can reach us. Um, our Instagram is definitely the way that we communicate the most. Our handle is River City Harm Redux, and Redux is spelled R-E-D-U-X, all one word. River City Harm Redux. Um, And we also have a text line that you can text for safety supplies, Narcan, and any of the supplies mentioned today. And that text line is 804-223-1275. And you can also DM us on Instagram. A lot of our volunteers manage social media. And so we, like I said, we'll give you outreach information on where to meet us or we'll sometimes set up separate meetups individually. We're open to all if possible.
0: Thank you. And if they're listening and they're like, wow, I would really love to support the work of River City Harm Redux. I want to throw my coins y'all's way or my time. What's the best way for them to get involved?
4: Yes, we are only able to continue the work we do with the help of our community. So thank you for asking. Our Venmo is honestly the best place to support us with that beloved coin, and we are under the name River City Harm Redux. Again, Redux is spelled R-E-D-U-X, River City Harm Redux. And you can find more ways to support us through the link in our Instagram page. And this is not a part of the question, but I just wanted to give a special shout out to all of the community groups, folks who have continuously supported us in our work in Richmond and beyond. We just, like I said many times, we can't do this without everyone's help. And uh, it's just... A joy and a privilege to continue doing this with all of you.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show and sharing the incredible work that y'all are doing in the city. And we hope to have y'all back on again to talk more about how y'all are sustaining this work.
4: Thank you. We would absolutely love that. And we appreciate you and Race Capital for your time and the space. Take care of yourself,
2: thank you.